Once upon a time, there were three friends. Juan. Hello. Karen. Hi. And me, Beck. We loved to sit in cafes, bouncing ideas off each other, collaborating on creative things and sharing the stuff we were into. We called ourselves, completely unpretentiously, the hive mind. But as so often happens, the demands of life started to encroach and it got harder and harder to meet up in person. What's a hive mind to do but find new ways to pick each other's brains? Welcome to the Hive Minded Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode eight of the Hive Minded Podcast. You're here as always with Guan. Hello. Karen. Hello. And me, Beck. And we're here to talk about the things that we're into at the moment. It's been a little while since we've all been together. Um, we were hindered by cultural festivals last time. I was in Malaysia and um, Chinese New Year was on and there was all sorts of things happening. So if you haven't checked out Karen's excellent post on Anna Kendrick's Scrappy Little Nobody, head over to our site and check that out. But now we're back all in our saddles, ready to talk or ride our horses or <laughs> something. I don't know. Anyway, Guan, can you kick us off? I'd love to. I think I'm going to talk about Magic Mike XXL. Which is... And nobody saw that coming. <laughs> you know how people say the greatest movie you've never seen? I think Magic Mike XXL is actually one of the greatest movie that, movies that most people haven't seen. Uh, so caveats up first. It is primarily a movie about male strippers. There is a lot of swearing. There's a little bit of drug use. So there are lots of reasons you wouldn't see this movie if you're particularly disturbed by seeing scenes of muscular guys in thongs then maybe you want to avoid it but well at the same time i feel like there's also this weird double standard as in people would say oh why would you go see that but then they're happy to see a bond film which mm. has the equivalent amount of female flesh on screen mm. at any point mm -hmm. in time so if you get past all of that stuff uh, and i haven't seen magic mike which is the original film in the thing, it stars Channing Tatum and a bunch of other guys in it. Uh, it's, it's a film that does so many things right. So you know how sometimes you'll see a film and you'll say, that was great, except for the horrendous objectification of women on screen, mm -hmm. or that was great, mm -hmm. except for the rampant sexism involved. So, for example, Guardians of the Galaxy, great film, kind of horribly sexist at a few points. And then... You see Magic Mike XXL and it is one of those films that somehow manages to do all those things right. It's also in a little subgenre of films that you don't expect much from and then manage to hit it out of the park. Mm. So it's a film that treats all of its characters beautifully, like they're well-rounded and they're super likeable and shock horror, they treat every single woman in the film as a fully rounded three-dimensional person that they want to get to know for their personality and what they're like rather than any surface level detail of you're beautiful so let's fall in love. The guys in the film just have really honest deep rounded friendships that is what we want to see what I want to see at the end of any kind of bro-y movie I see where deep friendships are either treated as kind of tantamount to homosexuality or um, mm. have those kind of overtones or this jokingly bros gotta be bros kind of thing and Magic Mike XXL manages to actually picture deep male friendships that are real and loving and do that 
in a beautiful way. There is stripping in the film, but as far as I can tell, I think that is actually a metaphor for, this sounds weird, but creative expression <laughs> and the many ways that can take part. And so mm. both creative expression in terms of sexuality, and that in itself is nothing to be afraid of, but also creative expression in a bunch of different ways. Uh, Donald Glover stars in it as a stripper who also kind of does this freestyle rap thing as part of his routine. <laughs> and it all just, again, works because it's seen as this part of expression is not just a thing you do for money, but a thing that comes from who you are and the things you can do. And so that mm. it all builds to actually just a really lovely ending that I won't spoil. I don't know. There's just so, so many things this film does right. Like many things, I was put onto the film by film crit Hulk's kind of mini review of it where he just praises its many virtues. And in the comments there, there's a great comment which says, this film left me kind of wanting, you know, this really well beautifully sculpted body like the guys on the film but it also made me understand at the very same time that's the least thing you need least in a healthily sexual way uh, because mm. it's also completely not about that and I think that's that's kind of why I love the film it's a film I could watch almost endlessly it's a really joyous film to watch once you get past those caveats that I mentioned before you've so yeah you haven't seen the original one so you can't compare no is it continuing on a story from the first one as far as you know, or I've seen is the it original. a standalone? Oh, you have. Okay. <laughs> to that. Yes, yeah, so, because the original is kind of like shining this light into this sort of seedy underworld of male strippers in, mm-hmm. I think mm. they're in New Orleans. And basically at the end of that movie, sorry, spoiler alert, um, Magic Mike quits the business to go off and start his own furniture making custom-made furniture, which has mm-hmm. been his dream. So is Mad- yes. Magic Mike as Channing Tatum? Yes. Yep. So Magic Mike takes the original plotline and continues it on from there with a kind of his wife has left him. I think one of the main stars of the first movie is not Girlfriend. in XXL. Right. Uh, okay. And But it's a bit of a one last shot with the band. So uh, he rejoins uh, kind of okay. the crew and they go down to the stripper convention for their last big hurrah <laughs> before they all uh, go on to do different things. And I should as well say there's, so one of the running jokes is that Magic Mike's like special song is Genuine's Pony. And there's a scene near the start, which just beautifully illustrates the thing, which is that in the stripping scenes, far from feeling awkward, it's kind of this, you're laughing, but you're also uh, enthralled by just the incredible physicality of this guy's, and so mm. early on in the movie, the his song comes on the radio. It just happens to come on, and it, he's kind of doing these both ridiculous, you know, sexualized motions, but also not because he's making the ridiculous, and it's kind of he's doing this woodworking thing anyway. And mm. you're also marveling, kind of in the same way that like I love martial arts flicks, and you're marveling at just the fluidity of motion that these guys are able to achieve. Um, and I think mm. that's why, you know, in part I'm able to recommend a film that's partly mm. about male stripping, but also mm. it's not really about that at all. It's about creativity and humanity. In that scene, he's not actually doing it for anyone. He's doing it for himself no. just because the yeah. song comes on and it just reminds yeah. him of those days and he just starts dancing and, and stripping and, you know, Channing Tatum is an incredible mm. dancer like he was mm. in the first Step Up movie, wasn't it? Yeah, he's amazing. So you've seen it, Karen? I didn't realise. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've seen both of them. And I actually, 
The first one I, I, I watched mostly because someone said something about the second one that made me think, oh, that would be interesting. And it was the male friendship thing, basically, you know, guys going on a road trip, talking about their problems sort of thing. I thought, oh, that would be interesting to see because you don't, as Juan says, you don't see that on the big screen very often. And so I did watch the first one so I could understand the second one, but they're very, very different films. And I, right. yeah, much prefer the second one. Mm-hmm. It was interesting that the creativity thing that Guan talked about because there is this moment in the film where they're talking about the routines that they've always done and mm. when why have we always done this oh it's because Matthew McConaughey's character kind of set the routines for them and mm. and then they're mm. kind of rethinking themselves as strippers and like well, well, well what should we be doing and and it's interesting that you know at the big show you see that creativity and self-expression come out oh yeah. no and I also really love oh who is it the big guy I can't remember his name in the scene in the the in petrol the, station uh, yes yeah it's like yes it's honestly an all-time scene for me like it's a scene I'll, I won't forget in a hurry just there's so many things <laughs> that are perfect about that scene they're kind of trying to work out whether to ditch the old routines or make new ones and it kind of hinges on whether one of the guys I think the actor's name is Joe something or other, it'll be in the show notes, yeah. can yep. convince this <laughs> cashier, you know, that he's a good enough dancer on his own and they're trying to convince him that he is. And, yeah, it's just a perfectly built scene, both comedy-wise and dance-wise. It's <laughs> almost worth watching for that, except the whole film's brilliant, so it's worth watching anyway. And the soundtrack to that scene is, is it I Want It That Way? I Want It That Way, Backstreet Boys, I... yep. Yes. It even redeems that song. <laughs> Now I feel like I have to, you know, stop recording and go and watch these <laughs> movies. I'm just like, oh, that sounds like just what I want to watch right now. Oh. The other comment. I never thought that I would, I would think that at the end of a discussion about this. this mind-blowing. Okay, go. Uh, the other comment about the film that I really loved was that I, it might have been film Crit Hulk, it might have been one of the comments on the article, but the obvious target audience in some ways for the film's film was, is girls or girlfriends going hee hee we get to see a film about male strippers but it's actually a brilliant film for guys to watch with Mm. other guys because it is about male friendship but also somehow one of the least likely films that would end up there so anyway feel free to watch it with your guy friends if you're listening that's really interesting it just made me think of one of the it was one of the um special features on the sisterhood of the traveling pants and how they were filming the second movie and they ran into this group of guys who I think had just finished school and who loved the first movie. And you think, why are teenage boys watching Sisterhood of the Travelling Pants? <laughs> and apparently all decided that they had to go and visit that Greek island where, you know, that one of the characters goes for the summer. Mm. And they were daring each other to jump off the rocks into the very, very <laughs> cold Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> and because the cast saw them and met them while they're on this trip and doing that they decided to put a scene in the second sisterhood of the traveling pants movie mm. where they do that they jump off the rocks into the <laughs> mediterranean sea but i just thought it was really interesting that yeah these boys that that particular film resonated with them because it was about friendship mm. and it was about mm. yeah those really really strong relationships and things and i guess there wasn't an equivalent for boys, they're out there. Like, mm. I, I, I don't know, I can't think of yeah. any. <laughs> yeah, it's it, that that whole aspect of, oh, if you're friends with other guys on a deep level beyond childhood. So I guess you've got things like The Goonies and Stand By Me and 
those sort of classic 80s films. Mm. But it's sort of before, I guess, pre-teen, maybe mid-teen. But it's before they're men, you know, you don't often get sort of stories about men together. No, you kind of default into war movies and that kind of... Yeah, war, mo- war movies or sort of smutty sex kind of things. Yeah. Which is why it's interesting that this, you know, on the surface has that sort of frisson of, oh, it's about stripping, but it's actually not about that. Like that that's really intriguing. Yeah. My question for you guys is favourite thing you have expected absolutely nothing from and then it's hit it out of the park. See, I'm a lover of really trashy stuff, so a lot of the time it doesn't, you know, like things (laughs) things like Bring It On, for example, (laughs) that are just super trashy but really enjoyable. No, Bring It On's amazing. Uh, Like, (laughs) I think that's actually in the ballpark. It knocks it out of the park and you expect it to be a Tina movie. Did you know that, like, when I heard that there was a Bring It On the musical, I was like, oh, are you kidding? But it's actually written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Mm. So... I'm like, oh, I'm have to check this out now and I'm going to suddenly love this musical about cheerleading. But I haven't, I've downloaded it and I haven't actually had a chance to listen to the whole thing through yet, but it's already great. And I'm like, why, why am I so snobby? You know, like why? Mm. I, this is something my brother and I have been talking about lately. And I think you guys and I have talked about this before as well. Why can't you just like something or kind of be, eh. you either have to be passionate about it or detest it in the current world of, um, criticism and social media and all that sort of stuff. You've yeah. got to, this is the best thing I've ever seen or this is the worst thing I've ever seen. You can't just kind of be like, I really enjoyed that. Mm. And I'm, you know, yeah, there might be problems with it, but that's kind of fun. Isn't and that's okay. Just like pop music in a way, you know, it's like people look mm. down on pop music for being popular, but actually there are things mm. about pop music that are immensely enjoyable um, and are just fun. Like Astrid went to see Trolls um, over the school school Mm. holidays and then Mm. um because we started listening to the soundtrack over dinner we've gotten well i've gotten hooked on that justin timberlake song um, (laughs) yeah stop this feeling i think it is yeah 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 and it's just it's very very catchy song (laughs) oh man and it's you just know that it's just pop confection right like even as they talk about it they say oh yes we just wanted a light summer hit that people could dance to and it's obviously mm. being constructed in that way, but it is so much fun and it's so catchy and it just makes you want to dance when yeah. you hear it. And <laughs> well, it's definitely the the sort of Pharrell Williams happy song of this year, you know, like it's just sort of everywhere and people are doing videos of themselves dancing to it because it's just so great. And yep. yeah. Mm. And I think, I wonder if, if it's things like say Film Crit Hulk and Karen, you can hate me, the phonogram guys. <laughs> Karen Gillan and Jamie McKelvey. That's right. Gillan and McKelvey um, talking about pop music as not not validating it, but, you know, sort of turning it on its head a bit and making it into this sort of magical thing. And and like I was saying, Film Crit Holtz, people that you kind of respect talking about their joy and delight in these things, you kind of go, yeah, I can have joy and delight in these things. Not yeah. that you need someone to tell you that you can, but well, that's it, I guess it's sort of, What yeah. great criticism does, I think, is that it helps you yeah. to re-evaluate a thing for what it's actually good for. And so, yeah, I think I've just gotten less and less interested as I've gotten older of, like, the point of criticism is not to just convince everybody that your opinion is the only valid opinion. Yes. Because that's A, yes. fruitless, and B, will kill you in the end. Yeah, but to... And don't you get a bit tired of critics who seem jaded about everything? You think they've seen 
everything and so nothing charms them anymore. Mm. So they something that would charm someone who doesn't go to the movies as often as I used to, like me, a critic goes, oh, this is so derivative and this is so bleh, and this is so that. And it kind of ruins the joy that I got out of it. So in all, in some ways it's like, well, it's kind of better just not to read those reviews. <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I think you've got to evaluate a thing against its intention is one mm. of the guidelines at least. And so if something's being made to be completely bland and formulaic and simply to strip the audience of its money, mm. then, you know, I think it's valid to say that and... Like the Great Wall. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe I had to go and see that piece started. of crap. Oh, anyway, you've seen continue. that too? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I haven't oh, seen no, it, why? I haven't seen it, but I just... Matt Damon in whitewashing um, and anyway, so, don't get me started. Just, oh, um, so bad. If something like a Justin Timberlake song is being made to be a pop song but a well-made pop song, there's literally nothing wrong with that. There's mm-hmm. goodness in that intention. Yeah. yeah, if it was a pop song that was going trolls, 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 <laughs> then you can kind of go, uh, no. <laughs> but if it's a standalone great thing, then yeah, there isn't. I think it's great. And if someone in the audience wants to make the Beck version of the Trolls dubstep <laughs> mix of what she just said, we would be eternally grateful. <laughs> yeah. Yes, do it. So if you play it, if you play it backwards, it, you've got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think also, um, I don't know where this fits in criticism, but I think people's relationship to a piece of work of art uh, it's significant in some way, like mm-hmm. because as a critic, you know, you might listen to something well, a music critic, you listen to it a couple of times, you might see the movie once or maybe twice or something, but people usually, if they really, really like something, they'll form this ongoing relationship with this work of art mm. and, mm. you know, it. things can grow on you so that you do end up appreciating it more. Like, just thinking about the discussion we're having about pop music, like, I can't remember if we talked about Carly Rae Jepsen before, but you know how, in a way, you could say that the entire album Emotion is derivative Mm -hmm. and it just sounds like the best of 80s pop Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that it's like it's still fun and it's still really enjoyable Mm. to listen to and you know it's just got something about it that just makes you want to listen to it over and over and over again and then you Mm. go okay even though I know that it is derivative in, in some ways and it's not anything serious or significant but I still really enjoy it <laughs> you know well yeah. and I think again yeah. I think that's the intention like her intention was to make an 80s flavored pop album that adults could enjoy mm. as well and again I think like that's an album I love a lot and she knocked it out of the park so again there's mm. kind of nothing wrong with that but, yeah. but then you then you compare it to I guess the first thing that pops into my mind there is Rebecca Black's Friday mm. and how cynical an exercise that was and you could see, not see, but, or yeah, the video was terrible, but um, <laughs> you could just see and hear that it wasn't, for want of a better word, authentic, you know, like it wasn't actually, yeah, there was, there was no sort of craft or art to it. It was just, hey, pop music is easy. Let's make a pop song that's going to make a stack of money. I'd completely forgotten about that song and now I'm remembering <laughs> it again and I hate you. <laughs> da, da, da. Let's move on. Trolls, trolls, trolls. Okay. Become the singing podcast. Thank you, Gwen. 
You can trust me to bring in the lowest common denominator element to any discussion <laughs> of pop music. Um, now I'll do a breakneck pivot to start talking about something that makes me sound like really learned. Maybe. I'm going to talk about Margaret Atwood, not Rebecca Black. I've been a fan of Margaret Atwood's for a very long time, as many young women do, discovered her in university. And I think the first book I read of hers was The Handmaid's Tale. Have either of you read it? Yes, but Yes, but it's a while ago, I know. Yep. Need to read it again. So, Same. yeah, it's been coming out in news stories lately because with the current political climate in the States, it and a few other dystopian books like George Orwell's 1984 have suddenly shot up the bestseller charts again. So this article says it's since the election, it's been 200% increase in sales. And given it was published in 1985, like I think it's been a pretty consistent seller since then, but it's just suddenly skyrocketed. Now, part of that is to do with the new Hulu series that's coming out in April Mm. that stars Elizabeth Moss from Mad Men and West Wing and Alexis Bledel from Gilmore Girls and the Sisterhood of the Travelling Pants. (laughs) as well as many others, but it looks quite quite stunningly produced. I'll put the trailer on the show notes page so you can check it out if you haven't seen it. Um, there was a, another film done in 1990 that starred Natasha Richardson and Faye Dunaway that was also really, really well done, but very disturbing. Well, the whole book is disturbing. And Margaret Atwood just excels in writing dystopias that unsettlingly, when you read them, you think, oh gosh, this is just so far-fetched or not far, not far-fetched in a bad way but like just oh, wow how does she even think of these things and then five ten years later you start to see the things that she wrote about mm. turning up in the news so i think she actually does do a lot of research into what stuff is currently happening like especially when she's writing her speculative fiction books that are set in the near future so one thing that is currently coming out in the science community which is really a bit terrifying is putting pig DNA, human DNA in pigs. I won't, I won't talk about what the science is because I'm going to get it completely wrong. But in one of her trilogies, the Mad Adam trilogy, mm. there are these pigs called pigoons that are loose in the wild, but they've got human brain DNA in them. So they're vastly intelligent, but wild beasts, and they're really, really dangerous. And when I, when I read that, article and it's just like what how did she know this is terrifying and then on twitter all these people are asking her what do you think about this she's just one of those almost like prophetesses which is why handmaid's tale is is a little creepy because it's about when the sort of basic freedoms get taken away from society and people just let it happen and then you suddenly end up in this situation where it's like how do we get here but it you can you can sort of see it the beginnings of it in some of the stuff that's coming out of the States now, which is a bit terrifying. And so in a lot of the protests, there were some placards that women were holding saying the handmaid's tale is not a guidebook and, you know, phrases from the book. So obviously it resonated with a lot of people that this, this can't be happening. But the thing that I love about Margaret Atwood is I guess the spareness of her writing. So Mm. she is, she makes these incredible worlds and and characters but she's not flowery or over descriptive or anything she's just she's really got a really nice leanness to her writing um i guess kind of in a way like helen garner does 
um, and probably why I'm a fan of both of them. And I aspire to such clean, lean writing because <laughs> it's it just it feels like nothing's wasted, you know, like everything is really everything's there intentionally. Yeah. I've just finished reading her book from a couple of years ago called The Heart Goes Last. And that's another dystopian situation that, that you just is unbelievable. But you, you can't, I found it so compelling. Like I just, I couldn't put the book down. I'd be two, you know, two in the morning going, I've got to go to sleep, but I want to read, I want to keep reading what happens next. And the thing about reading on a Kindle is you, you've got the percentage down the bottom of the Kindle that says how much you've got further to go. But when you're reading a physical book, you can kind of go, oh, look, there's still like a centimetre's worth of pages left. I'd better put the book down. I'm not going to finish that tonight. But with a Kindle, you can kind of trick yourself into going just a little bit more, just a little bit more because <laughs> you're not quite sure when it's going to end. I just think she's incredible. She's 77 now, hmm. but just doesn't oh, – you, you look at her bibliography page on her website and it's incredible. There's just – she's so prolific. She's one of those authors who, because – her name starts with A, obviously. Every time I would go into a bookshop, I'd head straight for the left-hand shelves of the fiction section to see whether she'd released anything new. Yeah. Um, and I and no matter what it was, I'd get it straight away. So that even though now I'm reading her books on Kindle, so it's not you know quite the same, I still have that real fondness, fond memories of going into bookshops like Glee Books and suddenly seeing a new Margaret Atwood and just being oh so excited. I don't oh I need to get this right now and just you know running off and finding a cafe and sitting down and reading it. Anyway, have you guys read much Margaret Atwood? Or it sounds like you read maybe one or two a long time ago. Yeah, I read a couple. Alias Grace. She did one called it's The Robber Bride. Is yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is, I don't know why I keep forgetting one. The one that sticks most clearly in my head is Surfacing. That was her second book, yeah. Yeah, and I, I kind of really liked that one because it was about a woman writing mm. and she was publishing romance, gothic romance novels. Um, yes. Yeah, and she'd gotten on to doing that because she used to be in a relationship with this guy who wrote doctor and nurse romance novels. <laughs> mm. And I love mm. how she, she takes all those tropes of the gothic romance and sort of twists them and... Um, I think the main character had all these really strange dreams that were bound up in the gothic romance and also the book that she was trying to write that was very, very late and, yes. and stuff. But yeah, things are, are just quite strange, I feel like, in her in her yes. books. Yeah, and it's that yep. kind of discomforting feeling that everything's a bit off and a bit weird. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. why she works so well with speculative fiction because of that strangeness. Um, her, a lot of her short stuff is really good too, like just the the short yeah. um, poems and short stories and things. So there's one called Good Bones, which I carried around with me everywhere when I was doing my honours thesis on Hamlet because I was quite inspired by, she wrote a couple of things of, um, I think, a monologue by Lady Macbeth and think there was one by Ophelia and she's she's just very good at, at the female perspective in a lot of these uh, the traditional sort of male driven narratives that she sort of just twists things and makes you look at them from a slightly different angle her her most recent book is called Hagseed which is a reworking of The Tempest so I'll hmm. get on to that soon. Gwen have you read much of her? Yeah I've read a bunch I've got The Handmaid's Tale is not that fresh in my memory so I've actually got it queued up on Kindle mm. and Oryx and Craig sticks pretty clearly in my mind mm. um, not sure if it was surfacing or some short stories but some of them which were kind of semi-autobiographical also stick mm. in my mind a bit 
my wife Mary mm-hmm. is a massive Margaret Atwood fan. I think she's read almost everything, not quite the recent stuff, but almost everything else. So mm. it's hard. Yeah, it's just hard not to be once you start writing. I think the real thing that really <laughs> interests me about her is how she managed that, that she writes science fiction essentially, but has never been, you know, put into that box, yeah. so to speak. Um, yeah. She's still in the literary fiction yes. genre almost. Yeah. So much of her work is not not what you call straight literary fiction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so have you read the others that came after Oryx and Craig? No, not yet. Yeah. So that's the that's what I when I referred to the Mad Adam trilogy yes. before. So Oryx and Craig is the first one of those then the year of the flood then mad adam and i think it was year of the flood that i actually read on um, audiobook and it was quite it was quite strange reading the first one in hard paper copy the second one in audible and the third one on my kindle mm. <laughs> um every experience you could possibly have with a book because a lot of this the narrative is first person it kind of works really well as a read story mm. and i forgot that mary was a fan of hers i think she and i have talked about it before yeah. The other thing that I find interesting about Atwood is the fact that because she's Canadian, it's almost she doesn't ever sort of refer to America directly, but it's like like so many Canadian artists tend to do that it's like they they're close enough to the US to be able to comment on it almost as though they're experiencing it, but they're just a bit removed from it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. It's like the outside inside yeah. thing. They've got that perspective of that experience yes. and perspective. So anyway, that's that's my fangirling about Margaret Atwood, and I'm really looking forward to The Handmaid's Tale coming out um, on Hulu just to see what that's about, and I'm going to reread it before I watch it. Beck, if somebody's never read any, what is Handmaid's Tale where you think they should start? Well, I guess it depends on what style of fiction or what style of book you really like. So if you're a fan of the sort of unsettling dystopia type thing, then The Handmaid's Tale is, you know, number one. It should be at the top of your list. And Mm -hmm. why haven't you read it yet? Um, But Alias Grace I loved, and that's quite intriguing. That's kind of a historical fiction, Mm -hmm. but like a murder mystery kind of thing. Um, She's she's very good at blending genres, I find. So I guess... If you're not sure, I get get good bones if you just want to dip your toe in and read some of her short pieces because that'll give you a sense of her really kind of wicked sense of humour hmm. but also her seriousness. So the two seem to ride together like they're just completely bound. She's serious and funny and witty at the same time. Like, yep. I don't know, it's very deft. Um, yeah, so try some of her short fiction if you're not sure where to start. Or just, you know, ask me on Facebook and I'll probably have a different opinion tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So let's move on to Karen. I've ended up reading another celebrity autobiography kind of by accident. Um, I was going to talk about Year of Yes, How to Dance It Out, Stand in the Sun and Be Your Own Person by Shonda Rhimes. I've started reading it too. Yay! That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, so I downloaded the book from Audible because it was a freebie. I was vaguely aware of Shonda Rhimes. Um, I saw so- a yeah, few things. Yeah, it was she. The name's vaguely ah. familiar, but I don't. Yeah, okay, so, so she is the creator uh, and producer of hit shows such as Grey's Anatomy and uh, Private yes. Practice and Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder, and there's a bunch of others as well, which I'm not familiar with. 
Um, I think I've seen... She keeps saying she owns Thursday nights because three of her shows are on Thursday nights (laughs) in the US. TGIT. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen, I think, seasons one and two of Grey's Anatomy, but I haven't actually seen any of her other shows. Um, have you guys seen any of her shows at all? Yeah, I've seen I've seen quite a lot of Grey's Anatomy. I think probably up to season four or five, maybe. And I watched the beginning of How to Get Away with Murder, but it didn't quite sit with me. And I haven't seen any of Scandal. But I've seen one episode of How to Get Away with Murder, and I'm vaguely aware who the lead person in Grey's Anatomy was. If you told me who she was, Ellen Pompeo. Yeah, her. <laughs> yep. Anyway. I downloaded the book from Audible because I think it was a freebie or or something like that at the time and I don't know, the title kind of intrigued me. Uh, It's basically about the year that Shonda woke up to herself and realised that she was not happy and decided to do something about her life. It was something that her sister said um, that kind of woke her up. Um, Her sister said, you never say yes to anything and with kind of like a, a time bomb that went off a little bit later and yeah destroyed her life <laughs> um she actually talks a little bit about it she did a ted talk i think it was a year after the book came out which i will link to in the show notes but the ted talk isn't titled very well because it's called my year saying yes to everything and really it's only she only talks about one thing from the book so, the year of yes thing, she made it a rule that she had to say yes to doing anything that scared her. And that included mm. going on late night talk shows. She was a guest star on The Mindy Project. Uh, she gave a graduation address at Dartmouth College. Um, she did a magazine cover shoot for Entertainment Weekly and so on and so forth. Um, so it was doing that sort of stuff, but it also includes doing stuff like revising her eating habits, um, cutting toxic people out of her life deciding who she really wanted to be as a writer and as a mother, not only that, a working mother, a producer and trailblazer, bla- sorry, trailblazer. She calls herself an FOD, like first, only different. So it's, um, it's part memoir, but it's also part self-help book in that Rhymes advocates for certain principles on the road to self-improvement, you know, the whole do the thing that scares you, mm. give yourself time to play a little more, be who you really are, that's the thing. She says of the book that it's about what happens when you open yourself up to change. And I really like that you see her struggle with it. You see her clinging to her old ways and for good reason. Like she goes into the backstory of how she is, the way she is, and then wrestling with that need to change and then diving in anxiously, nervously, queasily and going on to do great things. And I found this part of the book quite inspiring because Rhymes is at a point in her life where she seems to be quite set in her ways. She's enjoying a successful career with all these shows going. She's had three daughters. She adopted them all. Um, she's financially secure. Mm. She makes a living doing what she loves. She's kind of middle-aged, well into middle age. You'd think it would be impossible to change at that stage of your life, but then Rhymes shows you that it's never too late. And I think those parts were the best parts of the book, and they really showcased her style. She's got this lovely, self-deprecating, very likeable style. And also, who doesn't love a transformation story? The book also contains a lot of stuff about Rhyme's outlook and philosophy in life. You can see it in some of the speeches that she gave, like the Dartmouth graduation speech, which is worth listening to. And it's the sort of thing I wish someone had said at my graduation. 
And also she does this acceptance mm. speech when she's presented with the Ally for Equality Award by the Human Rights Campaign. And you can also see it, she's got this amazing chapter on motherhood and the mummy wars, which if you don't, you're not familiar with the mummy wars, it's the whole stay-at-home parents versus working parents. Mm. And I actually found that quite helpful when I was having a bad day. Mm. And I was thinking about you, the the, one, the chapter about the nanny, was it? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, right. and just thinking about that idea of, you know, having it all and blah, 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 and how it is actually a disservice to pretend that you can have it all. Like you've got to be honest about the help that you get because that helps people who look at you as a famous person and go, but she's doing everything. Yeah, and you have a lot of insight into, I guess, the way that she thinks. Like there's this bit where she talks about her relationship with Christina Yang, who is a fictional character in Grey's Anatomy, but it's this very, very intense relationship. (laughs) And I also really like that you got a sense of what Rhymes does as a writer and producer and how hard she works and, in a way, like her origin story as a creator. Like she talked about how she was very, very happy as a child sitting in the kitchen pantry making up stories in her head. And <laughs> Anyway, there's this bit I wanted to read you. Here we go. You and I are close friends now, reader, so you know how I feel about writing. Writing is the hum. Writing is laying track. Writing is the high. Now imagine that hum, that high, that track to be laid is behind a door, and that door is five miles away. Those five miles are just writing crap and doodling and trying to have an idea and surfing the internet and hoping like hell not to get so distracted that you give up. Worse, those five miles are lined with brownies and cupcakes and episodes of Game of Thrones and Idris Elba Hmm. waiting to talk to only you and really good novels to read. Every time I sit down to write, I have to mentally run those five miles past all of that to get to that door. It's a long, hard five-mile run. Sometimes I am almost dead by the time I reach the door. That's why I have to keep doing it. The more often I run five miles, the fitter I become, and the fitter I become, the easier the run begins to feel, and the less fresh and exciting all that stuff on the side of the road seems. I mean, how long has it been there? More important, as I get fitter, I can run faster. And the faster I can run, the faster I can get to that door. The faster you can, t- the faster you can too, writers out there. When you sit down to write every day, it becomes easier and easier to tap into that creative space in your mind. The faster I can get to that door, the quicker I can get to the good stuff. Behind the door is the good stuff. So when I reach the door and open it, that's when my creativity clicks in and that special spot in my brain starts working and I go from exertion to exaltation and suddenly I can write forever and ever and ever and ever and then suddenly someone opens the door and asks if I want coffee or water and I'm five miles away all over again. I grit my teeth and try to smile and say, no, thank you. See, I have coffee and water both already right here. And then I start running that five miles all over. I just thought that was perfect. Mm. It's great. <laughs> yeah. mm. The last thing I just wanted to say about the book, I did really enjoy it a lot. Um, and I enjoyed learning about her and going on the journey with her. But um, I couldn't help noticing Rhymes' humanism, which I think something that it's something that resonates with her fans because she's very much about people and treating people as people. Um, her year of yes is about finding herself as a person and making herself the best person she could be. And once she was that person, she found happiness. And while, in a way, it's a noble goal, it struck me as being rather, I don't know what the word is, self-reflexive, too self-focused, worldly, mm. something like that. It says we've been studying Ecclesiastes at church lately and... You know, Ecclesiastes talks a lot about what life looks like under the sun, you know, that is without God. And 
that surrounds his life in a way. Like, she finds fulfillment in herself, and that's the end goal. And now that she has that, she has it all. She's got the great career, the three beautiful daughters, the best nanny in the world, wonderful and supportive friends, her fam and family, a healthier body, and to top it all off, she's so much happier now. And it makes it sound like if you followed in her footsteps, you could be happy too. But, you know, chasing happiness is a bit futile in the end, and finding fulfillment mm. in yourself has limits. And the material mm. world, with career and family and money and whatnot, and all its glory, can only be satisfying for a time until it's not. Mm. Yeah, because we're made for something more than that. And life doesn't end on the last page of the book, you know? Like, yes. her life will continue for, hopefully, many, many years. Mm. Then she's going to hit hurdles again at some point when those things no longer satisfy. Yeah. yeah. So what's the, I guess, most helpful life advice that you've ever read in a, <laughs> in, I don't know, a, a book, a celebrity memoir or mm. otherwise? I think possibly for me and probably for all of us is um, Neil Gaiman's advice to just write, mm. just start. And that, actually that's a lot of writers' advice is just start and it's one thing that I struggle with. So, yeah, her what, the bit excerpt that you just read was very, very much along that line. It's just like you've got so many things that get in your way and actually you just need to sit down and get your pen out and mm. just start writing something. Mm. Yeah, along similar lines, I think. The one that comes to mind for me is by Dear Sugar. So Dear Sugar was a internet advice columnist, which was also actually the pen name of Cheryl Strayed, who then later wrote yeah. Wild, which is a movie with, Reese I've forgotten her name, Reese Witherspoon in it. The Dear Sugar advice column about writing, which is write like a, I won't swear here, but another yes. insert word here. Um, <laughs> and... It is, it is kind of that advice of just get writing, but it's also around mm. this, the person who's asking for advice is a writer who's struggling and struggling with the idea that she hasn't made it yet and would she ever make it and all these, mm. uh, I guess, ego problems that she's having. And Dear mm. Sugar's thing was that she's very humble and witty and wise about all of that, but her end advice is to do the work, to write like a... Yeah. Mm. And I think, I guess, holding that in check with what you were saying about Ecclesiastes and just sort of going, you know, even if I write 10 fantastic books, that's beside the point yeah. because that all all fade, you know. So having that dual perspective, having that um, that advice from other humans, but trying to have the foundation as being the advice from God in the Bible. Yeah. That reminds me of the advice in Bird by Bird, which we've mentioned before by Anne Lamont, mm. where it's just the best writing advice. She's like, if you're really struggling with <laughs> writing, just put down the pen and go for a walk outside and realise mm. it doesn't really matter that much. That mm. yes, when you have that kind of loose hold of your writing, like you want to do it, obviously, because otherwise you wouldn't be doing it, but also realising that in the grand scheme of things, your writing's not going to matter that much compared mm. to life and living life and relationships mm -hmm. that you have and the people that you love it's just it's also just writing so you can also mm. enjoy mm. it while you're doing it and that will be okay too definitely mm. cool well on that note we should talk about what we're working on mm. are you working on anything Glenn? i know i keep talking about 
this gathered podcast. It is happening. Uh, I recorded <laughs> an episode with the lovely Christine Bougie, who's a guitarist in Canada. Uh, she's a solo and uh, slide and pedal steel guitarist. She also plays guitar mm. with a band called Bahamas, who are great. So that was really fun to talk to her about morning routines. So again, follow me at This Is Guan. It'll be launching later this year sometime. Excellent. For me, I've started to get into the Westbury Ferry. Mm. Have either of you gotten into that yet? I don't know. I saw a thing it and it looked a bit too complicated, so yeah, I didn't write <laughs> I know. anything about it. But. It's that's that that was my first thing as well. And then the other day I, I don't know what made me go and look, but the website if you go to worldfairysociety.org, fairy spelled F A E R Y worldfairysociety.org they've set up this like uh if i was a teenager i would just be like this is the best thing in the world (laughs) and it's still pretty good even as a 40 year old but um it they've set up this whole site with augmented reality videos and clues that have been leaked over instagram over the last i don't know how long to basically try and get people to create a backstory for what who is the Westbury fairy and what is her story I think actually the thing that triggered was me realizing that Westbury is Westbury Tasmania which I've been to and it's this whole story about who is the Westbury fairy that you've got to try and write and so there's a competition as well so that you can write flash fiction stories or short stories and there'll be a short list and then eventually it'll be put into a book. And I guess it's going to end up being the whole sort of lore of this fairy world and all that sort of thing mm-hmm. and how it intersects with the real world. And yeah, there's just, there's so much to it that I haven't quite got my head all around it. And, but it's actually triggering me to write, which is really great. exciting. And I guess that's the whole point. Mm-hmm. So that even if the thing, the things that I write aren't, you know, fulfilling the brief necessarily, I'm actually enjoying sort of thinking about um, that sort of thing. And so um, one of the clues was about people being transported out to Australia from from Britain and the ferry has something to do with that or, or comes over or something. This is, I guess, what you have to work out. Since moving here, I'd been thinking a lot about people being transported here and what it would have felt like and because mm. um, there's so much landscape in Tasmania that seems unspoiled or seems like it would have looked to the people that first came here or to the indigenous people that once lived here and what it would have been like to traverse this terrain and all that sort of thing. So those sorts of things intersected and and have quite inspired me. So hopefully I actually finish something. Flash fiction shouldn't be too hard because that's only between 100 and 500 words. Mm. (laughs) But as I found with um, The Lane of Unusual Traders, which was another anthology world-building thing by Tiny Owl Workshop, um, which is also behind this as well. I found flash fiction actually a lot more difficult than it seems. Yes. <laughs> you sort of go, 500 words, that's not much, but to actually create something that's intriguing and cohesive and, and kind of a, a discrete thing in 500 words is a lot harder than it seems. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll go with the 3,000-word short story. Who knows? We'll see what happens. Anyway, that's what I'm doing at the moment. That's great. And how about you, Karen? Uh, I've not been writing any prose. I've been writing an article which was supposed to be a thousand words and is currently at two thousand three hundred words. <laughs> so, which is less than the three thousand five hundred or whatever it was the other day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Anyway, so at least I've been doing some writing, even if it's not 
short yeah. story stuff. I haven't actually touched it since the weekend away, which is a bit sad. Um, so I need mm. to get back to it, but life has been a little crazy these last couple of weeks. Yes. Mm. Oh, um, and cool. uh, I'm doing a workshop at Goldberg Comic Con in on the 18th of March. Um, it's mm. on comic script writing for beginners. It shall be fun. So if you are down that way, the Canberra Goulburn area, please come along. Um, the mm. workshop is free cool. and the event is run out of the library. I've never been to Goulburn Comic Con before, but I've heard good things about it. So yeah, exciting. Nice. I love the fact that there are Comic Cons and associated events in what seem like the most unlikely places. Yeah. yeah. You know, like... <laughs> Yeah, I think it's wonderful. Anyway, so thank you for joining us, dear listeners, and we will be back in another fortnight with some more stuff. <laughs> All the stuff. <laughs> Way to sell that deck. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop now. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Bye.